It's very good to come together as the body of Christ and remember the sacrifice of our Savior. Paul admonishes us that we should examine our hearts before we come to the table. I'd like for us to take a few minutes and let the Holy Spirit illuminate what's in our hearts that we would give forgiveness, that we would operate in forgiveness, that we would think through those things that God would want us to confess to Him before we come to the table. Father, we come into your presence knowing that Christ has paid the price for our sins. And before you, we confess those things that we have done that are not pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, thank you for stirring our hearts to be about the grace and mercy and forgiveness that you have shown us. Thank you, Jesus, for cleansing us. Thank you for the sacrifice you've made for us. We come humbly before you, knowing that you hear us, forgive us and you love us thank you father thank you jesus amen as we come to the table we're admonished in the word to remember the 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 sacrifice that jesus made for us and that sacrifice is something that's perfect because of what he did. The last night Jesus was with his disciples, he taught them what we do today. To examine our hearts and then to remember the sacrifice that he made. That last night he took bread and he broke it and he distributed that bread to his disciples. And he said, this is my body given for you, taking you. Father, I thank you that it was a human body. It was fully human. It hurt, it bled. I thank you that our Savior 
taking on human form, went to the cross, enduring all of its shame and all of its pain. And he willingly took that on in his body, taking on your wrath upon himself, wrath that was due us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you endured the pain and suffering and gave your body, your life for us. We praise you and glorify your name. Amen. That same night Jesus was with his disciples, he, he took wine and he blessed it. And that wine represents the blood and the Bible teaches us that life is in the blood. Our redemption, our, our salvation is something that God has done perfectly. And our cleansing has come perfectly through the blood. That blood also symbolizes a, an agreement that God has made with his people. We call it the new covenant. That covenant gives us access to the Father through Jesus. At night, Jesus took that cup and he, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, thank you that you had a plan from the very beginning to bring us into a right relationship with you. And that plan was for the Son to take on human form, live a perfect human life, and die shedding his blood for us. I thank you that that death also brought about a resurrection, a glorious resurrection, and that he lives interceding for us today. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you have done. Thank you for your sacrifice, your willingness to do what was necessary to purchase our lives. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. As we go through this morning, there are so many things that God has done for us. I want to excuse the children to go to children's church, that they would be blessed. And I ask that you'd strengthen all of the helpers and the other adults that go down with the thundering herd. There they go. As most of you probably realize, our brother... Claude went home to be with Jesus on Wednesday. It was a wonderful time with the family there. If you are able after the service, um, you could help us. We're going to rearrange chairs for the service. And if you can help with that, that would be appreciated. Thank you so much for all of the the cards and gifts and things that you've given to, to Zach and I. 
over Christmas. I thank you for how you respond as a congregation to the many needs that we've, we've had as a church. And I know that as we go through this week, remembering Claude, that you'll do the same. Be praying for the wares. We're coming to a new series of messages. And I was awake early this morning and I got to thinking about it being a new year. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Anybody daring to raise their hand? New Year's resolutions, okay. Good, there's not very many of you who do that because when I do that, I always break them. Some of them don't last the first day, right? Yeah. So as I was thinking that through, I was thinking about where we were at Friday morning with the men's group. We were talking about illusions and how very often in Christianity, believers live in an illusion. And there are some people who live this illusionary aspect of Christianity. Christ is not an illusion. The things of the kingdom are not an illusion. The things that Christ has done, they're not illusions. They're real. And this, this has kind of excited me because of where we're at in Romans chapter 8. This series that Zach and I have been planning is, is an awesome, awesome series. I've looked forward to this for a long time. There are many scholars who preach and teach that, Ru that Romans 8 is the most important chapter in the entire Bible. And I agree with that. What we're going to look at today begins us in this journey. And what we're going to see are facts. Th these are the realities of who we are in Christ. This is not illusion. This is not maybe. These are real things. There's a, there's a multitude of, of ways people have looked at Romans 8 as being the most important chapter. I want to go through a, a couple of them, a few of them. One of them is that chapter 8 deals deeply with the broken condition of the entire universe and how the believer lives victoriously in this brokenness. Paul expresses with precision and clarity the extent and security of our salvation and future condition. This chapter is so incredibly important for anyone who, who has a, a doubt, anyone who feels like, well, I'm not, I just don't know if I'm secure. Paul takes care of that in this chapter. This chapter teaches us about the intercession of the Holy Spirit and the inter intercession of Jesus for, both, for, for, the, for each believer. And it teaches the resulting perfection of what Christ has done. Our salvation is perfect. Chapter 8 explicitly answers the horrific problem that, that Paul has detailed in the first seven chapters of Romans. In many ways, if you read Romans and you start in chapter 1, it doesn't take you very long to go, man, this is not good. He, he does not paint a real pretty picture, especially in those first three chapters. Chapter 8 also follows that amazing statement of Paul's in chapter 7. That heart-wrenching confession 
of Paul's struggle with sin. And chapter 8 answers his question and gives details to his statement that he makes at the end of that chapter. Do you remember that? So I want us to begin here, and we're going to begin chapter 8 by going back to the last part of chapter 7. Beginning in verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's his question, and chapter 8 is going to answer that very succinctly. But then he also makes a statement that leads us into chapter 8. And the statement is, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he makes a statement that also presents a problem. And the problem is related to his question, Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's no other chapter that does a better job of answering that question. There is no other chapter providing believers with a greater nor more beautiful inventory of the privileges, securities, and assurance God has provided for each believer. In this chapter, there are no imperatives. Without using a single imperative, Paul motivates believers to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. It is awesome how he motivates us without giving us a you have to do this. Chapter 8 is awesome. One of the troubles that I have when I come to Romans chapter 8 is, as I, as I started to study this, of course, you, you begin in chapter 1, right? So you start looking at it, and I go, oh man, we could have an eight-week series on verse 1. So I start going into to verse 1, and, I, and I'm digging, and I'm digging, and it's just so marvelous what God has given us. And then I realize that we could focus on one word in chapter 8, verse 1. Condemnation. And we could preach and teach for weeks on that one word, that one concept. This is so loaded. It is so amazing and so valuable. It's awesome. Now, as we introduce this series then, there is a lot here. But we also need to understand how Paul got here. That helps us to understand chapter 8. And it helps us to understand how much of a pinnacle this is, how awesome this chapter is. How did Paul get here? Well, let's look at some background. It's pretty well understood that Paul wrote Romans while he was in Corinth. And Corinth was a, a crazy city. It was around AD, AD 57. And while Paul's living in Corinth, he's surrounded by a very, very diverse society. There were sailors, there were tradesmen, there was the wealthy and the poor, there were those that were persecuted, there were idolaters of every shape and size and kind, and there were Jews and Gentiles. And in, in this, this city, Corinth was crazy, it was, it was a horrendous city to live in. And I believe that influenced Paul's view that 
that caused him to write some of what he's writing. I think the Holy Spirit had Paul right where he needed him in Corinth to see the, the diversity of humanity because Paul logically takes his reader through the observable condition of the world and shows that all humanity is completely and hopelessly ravaged by sin. He would have seen that very clearly in Corinth. No one is exempt. That's a huge message of Paul. No one is exempt. All have sinned. In chapters 1 through 3 then, Paul clearly shows that all humans lack the righteousness acceptable to God because of sin. No one is exempt. We've all failed. We have not the righteousness necessary to be in God's presence. Then, as, as he logically goes through his writing, he, he writes of justification by God through the believer's faith, chapters 4 and 5. And Paul it goes on and explains the transformation from a rebellious sinner destined for hell to a secure child of God because of the work of, the, of, of Christ. And we see that in chapter 6, 7, and 8. So Paul has logically taken us from despair to this pinnacle of hope and security. So with that little bit of background, let's read today's passage from this incredible chapter. Beginning in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." That is awesome. We can live on that. Now, in this passage, Paul begins with a therefore. And you always need to look and find out why it's there. What's the saying? You need to find the, why the therefore is therefore. We've got to figure that out. Because it's very important when that term is used to see how it's connected. And I think of that connection in two ways. They're, they're kind of overlapping, but there's really two ways. First, I believe that therefore is there because Paul wants us to think of all of what he has written in the first seven chapters. He wants us to remember. That's the therefore. It's there to help us understand chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the pinnacle, the apex, the high point of what Paul has been teaching to fully grasp the incredible depth of what chapter 8 presents, we must understand the depth of the problem of sin. We must have a clear, honest evaluation of our condition. So in this sense, the, the, the therefore is looking back at all of Romans 1 through 7. Now, I also believe that we can take that a little bit more precisely because I believe that Paul is also directly relating back. He's looking back to 
his personal description of that ongoing intense battle with sin in chapter 7. Because he's specifically answering those cries of his heart in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is crucial. It is a crucial answer to the pain of continually being in the intense warfare with sin. Without the encouragement of chapter 8, why fight? The battle's hard. So without Paul's encouragement, why do we do this? Chapter 8's awesome. Paul's first statement actually addresses this issue of why fight, of our condition. And he does it so beautifully. This is so amazing. Think carefully of these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is, in reality, this is the heart and soul of the gospel. This is the gospel. Let's look at this a little deeper. Condemnation in that verse, katakarima, it, it does not relate to sentencing for a crime. So, so the crime has been committed, you've been sentenced. But then there's the penalty. The penalty, the result of your sentencing. That term used in this way is actually referring to that penalty. And what's the penalty for our crime? Death. Experiencing the wrath of God in such a way that we gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul begins with no condemnation. That needs to be deep within us and, and it should excite us to no end. Because the way that's written, now no condemnation what that means, especially if you look at it deeply in the Greek, it means complete and permanent payment of the penalty. You can never ever be accused. Well, you can be accused, but you'll never suffer the penalty. Ever. As a believer. The work of Jesus on the cross completely and permanently paid the penalty for every person who humbly asks for mercy and trusts in Christ's completely sufficient sacrificial death and His glorious resurrection. That is awesome. That first sentence, that first phrase, this is incredible assurance in what the believer receives from God. No condemnation. Wow. Now, this connects us to some other ideas that are very related. One of those is from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And here it is. This is the link. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. He took the wrath of God for you. 
Because he took the wrath of God for you, you never ever will experience the wrath of God. No condemnation. Never, no matter what you do, no matter how bad you think you have been, never will you as a believer experience the wrath of God. Boy, we're Baptists this morning. Not only is the believer rescued from the certainty of eternal death, the wrath of God, because of sin, Jesus also cleanses the believer. So the work just continues. This is all connected to this same idea of there being no condemnation. Again, we, we find this 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cleanses the believer from unrighteousness. There's no condemnation. You're cleansed. But our loving Heavenly Father doesn't stop there. Through Christ, each believer is not only cleansed, but is given perfect righteousness. This amazes me. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch that? He's not saying your righteousness is going to be kind of a human form of righteousness. It's going to be some lesser kind of righteousness. The righteousness of God is what God gives to you. You are righteous like Jesus. There is no condemnation. You are given righteousness. You are made clean. All of this ties together. We have perfect righteousness. So what that's teaching. Hebrews 10:14 also. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And I'll bet you, when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, oh, man, you don't go, you're perfect. And if you do that around your spouse, you get a, <laughs> yeah, not on your life, buddy. We have been perfected for all time. Our salvation is perfect. That's why Paul makes that statement. There is now no condemnation because your salvation is perfect. I'm going to say it again. God doesn't stop there. Because in this, this whole perfection and in this whole process, God shares, Christ shares his inheritance. Everything he has. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is Christ's? What belongs to him? Everything. And in Christ, you have the same inheritance. 
That's huge. That's huge. So you have this, this whole structure that takes us to this place where we need to understand what it means to have no condemnation. You've got so much. Now Paul also uses the term there in, in verse 2. He's, he begins, for the law. So he starts using law here. And in most good Bibles, it's going to be a lowercase l because... Law in verse 2 does not refer to the Mosaic law. The way Paul wrote that, what he wants us to understand is that this is a principle of operation. This is a way we live. Those two uses of law there. It's a principle of operation. And he's contrasting two principles of operation. The law of the Spirit of life. That's one principle. And he contrasts that with the operation of the law of sin and death. The other one. And what's he say? He has set the believer free from the life, the law of sin and death. And given the believer life in the spirit. As a believer, you operate under a whole different principle. Paul also begins to, to, to talk about the Holy Spirit. He refers to the Holy Spirit, and we know it's the Holy Spirit, because only the Holy Spirit can bring life to a spiritually dead heart. Only God can do that. The Holy Spirit imparts spiritual life to a believer and continually encourages the believer. The Holy Spirit lives in you as a believer. In you. Now, now that, that also brings us to this whole idea that's a key component to understanding what Paul's talking about. And that key component is that, that little tiny two-word phrase, in Christ. In Christ. So important. A Christian. A Christian is a person who is in Christ. I talked about illusions earlier, and one of the illusions is that, that we're not actually in Christ. He's something that we just kind of attach, and we kind of pick him up when we, we kind of need to do that. Believers sometimes live that way, and unbelievers, I think, very often do. Being in Christ is so important that we grasp. A person who says, I'm a Christian, is saying, I am in Christ. Paul makes this clear. He, he talks about this in Romans 6, verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Walk there meaning live. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the whole idea of being in Christ is that we, we are more than just attached to him in some superficial way. It's not just simply identifying with Christ. 
In this country, I, I just saw it, I think it was this past week, 63% of the population of our country says, yeah, I'm a Christian. They identify with Christ. Now, we know from society around us that that 63% probably doesn't mean there's 63% of the country are actually saved. People identify with Christ, but that's not what Paul's getting at. Being in Christ is more than that. The Christian participates in the life of Christ, Christ is a part of the life of Christ. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ. That's more than just identifying. Paul teaches this again a little bit more earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. There's something more than just identifying with Christ. Now, we're identifying with Christ, and we're part of the body. But we also know that we have this struggle called sin. And we know from Romans chapter 7 that Christians will struggle with sin and the flesh no matter how devoted to Christ. You, you can find people who are devoted to Christ who don't know Him as Savior. Is that shocking? Devoted to Christ. Everyone still struggles with sin. The concept is being in Christ. Christ has made new creations, a new heart in believers. Sin is no longer in total domination and control. That's part of, that's, that's the, another benefit of being in Christ. That's another way we know we're in Christ. We stumble and we struggle, but sin cannot destroy us because our new life in Christ is God's life through the Spirit. We live in Christ. Christ. We struggle, but sin and that struggle cannot destroy us because there is now no condemnation. The Bible teaches that we need to be obedient. Okay, so, and we know that sin is a problem, and we shouldn't sin, and we're to be obedient. But that obedience is not what saves us. And the reason it cannot save us is no matter how good you think your human obedience is, it's not perfect. And your human obedience cannot produce the holiness mandatory to be in God's presence. You can work as hard as you want to to be obedient to God, and you're going to fail. I'm not saying it's not good to work for that, but that's not going to save you. What the Bible teaches is that salvation produces obedience. As we come to Christ, as we live in Him, our desire is to be obedient, and we actually have the ability to be obedient in Christ. So the believer continually works toward obedience to pleasing God. In Romans 8, 3, Paul says, 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. The law, so that would be our effort to keep the law, the law in general, it cannot save people from their sin. In verse 3, law there is actually referring to the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law provokes sin and condemns those who sin. The law has a purpose. The function of the law is as a teacher or a tutor. Galatians 3.24, I like it from the NASB. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. The law has, has the ability to expose unrighteousness and condemns us because we can't keep the law. Romans 8.3 is the definitive and succinct statement of Christ's substitutionary atonement. It's His work that saves us. This is, this is the heart of the gospel. Here we are in the first four verses of chapter 8, and we're just, we're just getting inundated by the, the gospel of Christ. The good message, the message of the miraculous, spectacular, awesome, life-transforming truth that Jesus Christ paid the penalty on behalf of every person who would trust in Him as Lord and Savior. This is where Paul's at. This is where he begins. In verse 3, for me, for, I, I sometimes struggle with some of the things that we find when those that are smarter than us translate. I wouldn't have used for in verse 3. I would have used because or since. Because what Paul is stating is a fact. He's explaining an unchangeable truth about what Christ has done. He has done this because God has done what the law could not do. Because he's stating fact. What the law could not do, God did himself. Only God can destroy sin and rescue the sinner. And God coming to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he put an end to sin. Jesus was fully man. But it says he was in likeness of man. The likeness part there refers to the fact that Jesus never, ever sinned. He's just like you and I, only he never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted as we are. He was human. He was tempted in every way that humans can be tempted, and he did not sin. This is what allowed him to offer the perfect sacrifice to meet God's righteous penalty for sin. Jesus was able to offer his sacrifice and take on the penalty 
and do that for us because he was perfect. He never sinned. This means that Jesus completely, in every way, bore the the ferocity of God's wrath on all sin. I don't know about you, but when I hear about God's wrath, my my mind kind of goes, that's really not where you want to be. God's wrath. Just how bad can God's wrath actually be? That's what Jesus bore. His offering was perfect, breaking the power of sin over those who trust in Him. Jesus, so amazing. He was fully human. He he taught. He came to earth. He taught. He performed miracles. And he lived this sinless life. And there's all these stories that we have of him in the Bible. And those things are, all of those things are important, are, are so incredible. They're, they're valuable. They're important. They're marvelous. The teachings of Jesus, the healings, raising people from the dead. But Christ's supreme purpose for coming to earth. The supreme purpose was to sacrifice his life for sin. This is why Paul writes in verse 4, the requirement of the law is fulfilled. But there's, a, there's something. Okay, so Christ did that. And we're believers, so we're in Christ. So Paul's saying the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, in us. Wow. We're not, we're not then rescued from sin in order to just do whatever we want. And there's no condemnation. We're, we're rescued from sin, so let's go party and have a good time. I saw that, brother. We'll pray for your salvation. (laughs) Jesus didn't do this so that we could just do whatever we want. We're saved, and when we realize what God has done, we're saved to do what pleases God. The motivation changes. I want to do what pleases God. This is also where Paul takes us in Romans 8. He says, do not walk. Believers do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is not written as an exhortation. This is what you will do. He didn't write it that way. It's not an exhortation. It's not a rule. Paul is stating a fact. He's stating an ongoing fact. Believers who are in Christ walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. He's stating fact. And Paul is using walk figuratively, which means a habitual way of living. It's the lifestyle. What's the lifestyle? The lifestyle is that I want to live for God. I want to live according to the Spirit. And again, he contrasts this lifestyle a lifestyle of living in sinful flesh or living in the Spirit. Which one is it? 
The believer's desire is to live according to the Spirit. No, no, no believer is exempt. Each believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And because the Spirit dwells within each believer, believers in Christ, those who are in Christ, produce fruit. There's, there's a result. There's, there's something happening as the Spirit works in and through each believer. Now, there's many times in my life as a pastor that people say, I don't think I'm producing anything. I just, I just seem like I'm just fighting every day, and, and you know, life just seems miserable. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Every believer who is in Christ is producing fruit. You may not see it, and it may be very small. But because the Spirit of God resides in you, you are producing. You're connected to the vine. You're connected to Christ. You are in Him. Walking according to the Spirit means believers communicate with the Father. Uh, what that means is that we pray. We call out to Him, we cry to Him, we, we talk to Him. And along with that, walking according to the Spirit means that we listen to Him. And the primary way that we listen to Him is through His Word. What does His Word say? How much time are you spending in the Word? Many times I think we live in that illusion of, I'm going to pray and I, I pray and 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 I pray, but I don't ever go to the Word, so I don't ever hear God's answer. It's a one-way conversation. Make it a two-way conversation. God speaks to us principally through His Word. We also need to understand that being in Christ means that believers are taught by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us internally in some amazing ways. The expectation is that as believers, we seek His guidance and help. Is your expectation, as you're going through things in life, is your expectation, Holy Spirit, help me through this. Now, as we've talked about these things, I want to make sure that we understand some things, just, just so that we, we're all on the same page, that we get it. I want to stress that deliverance from condemnation and the judgment of God is not based on anything achieved by the believer's own effort. There is nothing that you or I can do to achieve that status of no condemnation. Salvation, that no condemnation part, is provided only by God's grace. Our part in this is to believe. We believe God does the rest. We must also really realize that the continuing conflict with the sin nature will be with us until we're with Jesus in heaven. It's not going away. And because it's not going away, then you've got, you've got to be in the fight. You've got, to, you've got to be there. But how refreshing and enjoyable that fight is and, and how incredible, amazing the fight is when you realize that there is no condemnation. The penalty has 
been fully and permanently paid for by God's grace. Fight the fight. You win. There's no condemnation. Now, some other things that are really important. One of them is that this idea of no condemnation does not mean that God withholds His discipline. Those of us who are parents understand that our children will always be our children. We can't change that fact. Our kids will always be our kids. There have been times, however, when we've had to dish out some discipline. And the relationship is a little painful. You know, when my boys were lighting matches in the wood shop, burning sawdust on the floor, <laughs> there for a little while, I didn't want them to be... No, I... It, their position as my sons did not change. They did receive discipline. Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. God dis disciplines us. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be better. He wants us to mature because he loves us. But in that discipline, there is no condemnation. We also need to remember that each believer is accountable to God. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, so will he also reap. We're accountable to God. He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows your every thought. And we're accountable for that before Him. But even in that accountability, there is no condemnation. That is huge. How wonderful and exciting to know that as believers, we will never under any circumstances. No way is it possible if you're in Christ, there is absolutely no way possible if you're in Christ for you to be subject to God's condemnation. That means that as a believer in Christ, you will never, ever experience God's wrath. No wrath for the believer in Christ. You do not have to ever fear that God's wrath will fall on you because it, would, it, it fell on Christ. Christ took that for you. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ. That is amazing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a marvelous start to the greatest chapter in the Bible. Father, thank you for the work that you've done through your Son. Thank you that we can come boldly into your presence knowing that you love us so much that you gave your Son, knowing, Father, what you've done is so perfect and so complete. I thank you, Father God, that there is no condemnation you see us as righteous in Christ. I ask, Father God, that you would help us to live that way. 
Holy Spirit, stir us up to the truth that we are in Christ and we are not condemned, that we are in Christ and we are free from a lifestyle of sin and death. Thank you, Jesus, for making it all possible. We love you and praise your name. Amen.